Hello, my friends. This is life coach Mike Chargman, and welcome to an episode of Mike's Search for Meaning. I'm after some big questions. Why are we here? What makes a fulfilling life? How can we grow individually and collectively? Each episode, I'll dive deep with leaders who are doing great work in the world and see how they organize their life. Books read, value systems, resources used, and stories that show how each of you can create the life and the world of your dreams. On today's episode of Mike's Search for Meaning, my guest is Matthew Harms. Matthew is an author, a writer, and the owner of Pen for Hire, his ghostwriting company, where he helps people get their book written so it can be published. And in this conversation, Matthew and I really are focused on one of my new favorite areas of exploration, creativity and writing. So we talk about how this is applicable for anyone in their everyday life. A lot of us, when we're in doing mode all the time, we don't pause and write down things that were maybe insights throughout the day or things that drew our curiosity. And Matt always has a notepad present with him and writes stuff down when he has ideas. So that was one really practical takeaway from our conversation. He's also an entrepreneur who began his career like me in a finance related profession and realized after years and years of doing it that he wasn't in the right place. And what is really heartwarming about Matthew's story is he didn't realize at a super young age or really early in his career that he wasn't in the right place. Or what, rather, when he did, it took him a long time to finally take action on the career he always wanted to have. And he didn't even identify ghostwriting really as a profession that he could ever make it in. And conversations like these really have opened my world into if you have your heart behind something that is meeting a need for other people, you can certainly get paid for it. And it doesn't hurt to at least put yourself out there and try. I really enjoyed this conversation with Matthew. He has lots of practical things, including books and resources that were helpful for him that you can implement into your daily life to enhance your creativity and frankly, to be better in all areas of your life. So while he presents as a ghostwriter, I really think that anyone can take a lot out of this conversation. Settle in, take a deep breath. And enjoy this conversation with Matthew Harms. Matt, welcome to the show. Michael, thank you so much for having me. It's an absolute pleasure. It's nice to have uh, another fellow New Yorker, native New Yorker on the podcast. And I wanted to start with you on your journey. I know that you grew up in the Bronx and that comes with there might have been a certain conditioning of like, this is the direction that you're supposed to go with your career. And you and I both have in common, we started our careers in a way that wasn't congruent with the vision that we held for ourselves in our childhood. So I would love to hear from that perspective, when you were growing up, what did you think you wanted to be? Where did you end up? And then what were some of the twists and turns uh, along the way. It's a, I know that's a big question to start, but we can maybe maybe just give us a little background on what it, you know what did you want to be when you grew up and and what why did you decide on your initial career? Okay, 
that's that's perfect and i thank you again for having me here um it's always great i feel like we've known each other forever even this is only the second time we've spoken growing up in the bronx it, you know we were a very lower middle income family so i most of my life up until we moved out i shared a bedroom with my brother you know until probably 18 19 years old and i was always writing like people were playing video games or outside writing was kind of always my thing my go to like escape and once I got into high school, sophomore year, junior year, I found myself starting to write term papers for people and getting paid for it, which I was like, wow, this is pretty cool. One year, my senior year, I wrote so many term papers that I almost failed my own because I wrote it last since I wasn't a paying customer. <laughs> and I thought like, hey, this is great. This could be my career. And the advice that I got from my immediate family was writing is not really a job. Like you, you want to write books, fine, but it's not a job. You've got to go to college. And I was like, but I don't really know if I want to, like, are you sure? And there was really no, it wasn't open for debate. It was go to college or you're moving out. I was like, well then I guess I'm going to college. Found out late years later, I'll fast forward and then come back that not only was I going to college, but all the student loans were in my name. So I think I was better off moving out, but regardless, Got a degree in finance because nobody told me what to study. I figured I started in accounting because I, I knew a couple accountants who made a lot of money. Realized I absolutely hated it, could not get into it. Switched to finance because when you put a dollar sign in front of things, it made more sense to me. But I worked my way through college uh, in order to pay for it. So I made my schedule where I'd go to school three days a week. And then the other four days I was working full time. Because of that, I never took advantage of any internships because, you know, who works for free? That just, again, wasn't a thing I was taught as of any value. So when I graduated, instead of working on Wall Street, like I hoped, I wound up doing everything you could imagine from selling life insurance. Um, I was a financial advisor. I had my series six and 63. Um, then I was working in retail banking, seeing how many checking accounts you could open in a, in a given day. Um, you know, I know there's plenty of light on that now with the Wells Fargo oh, and the HSBC scandals. And it was just, it was not really what I expected. And I'll pause there and just say that basically went on for about 15 years. So I, I wanted to, I want to know, so I like my, my crisis point in my career came in a much shorter window. Like I, I started in accounting. I, I think we've discussed this at least very briefly. And, and I still do that part-time, but I knew that I was in the wrong place and was actually willing to own that and admit it maybe five years into my career. And you, you said that you were in your career for 15 years. And I know that since then you've successfully built a business and it didn't, it didn't take very long and it can, it's really tempting and, and in some ways seductive to think of that last day being the, you know, things just like clicked for me. And I, I realized like, I just need to drop everything and go follow my passion. And now here I am, I'm following my passion and it all worked out. And um, I'm finding myself curious about the different moments in your 15 year career that were, did you have other doubts? Was it, were the blinders on so heavily that you didn't even pay attention at all? No, no, not at all. In fact, I, I knew several times there was an issue. Um, so the thing about finance and retail financial services, especially, is that it's broad. 
So there is so many changes you can make within the industry that you think you're doing something better, right? It's like, okay, I'm done with this commission-based sales nonsense. I'm going to go work and get a salary in commission. So I did that and I became a, a, they call it personal banker. And then that position, you hit your limit and you're like, I'm going to try business banking because it's new. And then the company, you finally say to yourself, you know what? No, it's, it's just this company. This company is terrible. Um, and then you speak to other people and they're like, well, I just moved to this bank. We have an opening. Do you want me to put in a good word for you? So you say, yes, please. So now again, you think you've made a change. I mean, realistically, you have. You, you've moved companies, you've moved positions, but you haven't changed the overall issue. Mm -hmm. So I allowed those changes, you know, a couple months would go by. I'm like, this is great. And then ultimately the cycle just repeated. Mm -hmm. You'd fall back and you'd realize, oh my God, this is really just the same thing I was doing with, a, you know, they put a different hat on it. And 2017-ish got to the point where I, I finally realized that I was at the highest position I had ever been. I was making more money than I had ever made. And I was just miserable. I, I didn't want to get out of bed in the morning. The only company events that I would show up at were the ones where there was free alcohol. And like you find yourself hiding from customers, just not wanting to be there. And I started getting back into writing. Mm -hmm. And that's when the switch started to go off of, no, you know what? The next move is not another role in financial services. It's out. Mm -hmm. Was there support that you solicited or someone that you hired to help you with that transition? I, I know it can be a really painful process to be achieving all the success that you ever dreamed of externally and to realize what is this all for? I'm, I'm in the wrong place. I want to get back to what I love doing. Was that something that you tackled on your own or did you, like, what were some ways that you helped yourself make that shift? So what's funny is now I have several people um, who kind of fill that role at the time. I did not. I was still, everyone that I knew was in that banking mindset. So if I ever said anything to anyone, you know, like I, I can't take this, I got to get out. The only suggestions that were ever given to me were, have you applied for this position? Have you looked at that bank? Um, I was like, no. So there was really no one to talk to. And all the jobs that I found that I wanted and applied to, I never got. I would get constant calls from headhunters and recruiters. And every time I got my hopes up, it just turned out it was another bank mm -hmm. trying to convince me they were different. So I finally found a part-time coaching and consulting job in New York City public schools. This was the end of 2018, working with junior high school students to teach them how to use writing as a form of social emotional learning. Mm -hmm. It was like a per diem job. The, the total hours they were giving me barely covered my mortgage on a good week, mm -hmm. but it was something that was going to get me out. And I just took the leap of faith because I knew if I didn't, it was, I was going to wind up getting fired anyway, or just stop showing up and then have no safety net. So mm -hmm. I, I took matters into my own hands until the pandemic happened. Then they shut down the schools. So now I was trying to build this pen for hire business. At least I had a little income coming in. And then that happened. And now I'm like, oh, wow, do I go back to working at a bank? Mm -hmm. And I still remember the defining moment for me. I was, um, I had a friend who was like, hey, 
this old manager, one of the few I actually liked, or I'm, I'm going to say liked because after this event, I really have no use for him anymore. But he was like, he's hiring. I can get you a management job. At least you'll get your benefits back and you can figure it out. So I said, you know what? I'll interview. Mm-hmm. Showed up and was made to wait there for over an hour while he interviewed everyone else and then left without ever seeing me. I found out later that apparently because I abruptly left banking, it's, it's a very small world. Um, one of my prior managers had put out the word that I was not hireable. Mm. I found this out after the fact that was a blessing in disguise because I think that very next week I met a gentleman who was an Amazon bestselling author and stuck on writing his second book because he didn't have the time. He was managing his company and we had hit it off. He knew I wrote a few of my own books by this point. And he asked me if I could help him finish. And I was just confused. I was like, what, what do you mean? He was like, you know, it's called a ghostwriter. I was like, yeah, but oh, don't only celebrities do that? And he was like, no, people do it all the time. Um, he's like, come on, I'll pay you. And I was like, okay, let's give it a shot. The rest <laughs> is history. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, before we get into, I want to talk about pen for hire. I want to talk about ghostwriting and and your creative process is something I'm really interested in as well. But when you were a full-time professional in banking and the other twists and turns that you had, were you always writing at least a little bit? Was that something you never lost sight of and was kind of humming in the background? Or were, were there times where there were complete droughts and you lost sight of it? Man, that's a great question. Uh, there were definitely times, at least on the creative side for me, where it wasn't even on the radar, right? I was working such ridiculous hours or you know, coming home just so miserable, I couldn't get in a creative space that my shifting point was realizing the only part of my job I enjoyed doing was sending emails. Mm. The more detailed the email, the better. Like if we got a customer complaint, I was all over it. I'd lock myself in my office for two hours and write a book on what actually happened. Or, you know, if it was a legitimate complaint, what we were going to do to address the situation. And people would like pick, poke fun at me. And they were like, Matt, bullet points. Like, please, can you write your email in bullet points? And I'm like, no, uh, this is the only part of this job I enjoy. <laughs> uh, I, I don't think I've ever heard someone talk about writing a long email that way. And that it's so, it's so fascinating. I, I wanted to <laughs> uncover with you what were, it seems like based on that response, almost anything, like nothing was off limits, just the process of writing in and of itself was enjoyable for you. But what were some things that you were drawn to write about? So for me personally or, or business related? Personally, before you made it your vocation? Um, personally, I've always been a fan of storytelling. So mm-hmm. my first book, which shall forever remain unpublished, because knowing what I know now, I realized how poorly it is written. Um, but it was, it was a fantasy. It was like 600 pages. Then when I was 19, 20, I had started a psychological thriller that just sat dormant until I, 2018, I wrote my 2017, 18, I wrote my first book employed, which was really geared toward some of these millennials I was interviewing. So that was the first time I went to nonfiction. Mm -hmm. And it was because I was seeing the need in people that I would interview. Our first interview was always a video interview and candidates were amazing. 
And then I'd bring them in, I'd meet them in person. And it was like, who were you? And what did you do to the person who was on the screen? They lost all social skills. So I wrote about it. And I had a few friends read it who were also managers in banking, hiring. And they were like, this is amazing. Like, you need to put this out. So I did. Then the next year, I was like, I still had that momentum. And I wrote my next book because I started thinking and reflecting of how the hell did I wind up here? And then I was like, oh, yeah, that, that college finance degree. I was like, you know what? They didn't teach me a whole lot in college, right? Like they didn't teach me I was going to wind up here. So my next book was called Grow Up. And it was all about how they don't teach you how to manage money. They don't teach you how to decide whether to rent or buy, lease or finance a car. Um, and after that one, I was like, wow, this is good. That was actually the point where I quit my job. Hmm. And then I went back to working on that psychological thriller. And I wound up putting that out in 2020. So for me personally, I'm really a big fan of fiction. I like creating. That's when I can just check out and create anything I want. Um, and I think especially now that I ghostwrite and 95% of what I ghostwrite is business and professional development related for other people. I don't want to do that for me. Right. Hmm. And I want to get into your creative process a little bit. So what is it when you sit down to write, what is the environment that you set up that allows successful writing? It, it sounds like you're able to extrapolate from any number of different areas and that it's not, a lot of people talk about writing as a, something that they really want to do, but get really blocked up with, or they, they sit down and then the, the doom of the blank screen or the blank page can be overwhelming. I'm not hearing that that is something that you contend with as much. So I would love to hear more about your process and where, where you would guide people to go if they, they're feeling stuck with their writing process. Oh, I could probably spend the entire rest of the session on this. I'll try to keep that brief and focused. The first thing I tell everyone, because we also coach authors, is one, just start writing. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, there's something to be said for planning and knowing who your audience is and what your message is. Yes, those are all elements of a successful book. But if you're not really comfortable in the writing process, just sit down and start writing. You know, if you want to write a book about leadership or you want to write a book about accounting, sit down and just start writing the first things that come to your head. Because it's going to get you thinking about, oh, well, that brings me to this. That brings me to this. Number two, always have a pad or something nearby. Yes, I know you could put notes in your phone, um, but phones, I'll come back to that in a minute. They're, they're a huge distraction and will be more of a detriment than good. So I've got sticky pads. I've got notebooks, floor to ceiling, and I'll write ideas down everywhere. Some are novel ideas, some are blog ideas, but the point is as soon as they come into my head, they get written down mm -hmm. because once you forget an idea that now sits there in your head. Mm -hmm. And it's like, well, I can't write today because I had this great idea and I can't remember it. No, those ideas are all somewhere. So if I ever want to write and I can't think of what to write, I open a notebook and I'm like, which of these topics do I want? Like what jumps out at me? Uh -huh. um, and then the, really, I'm a purist for the most part. When I write my own stuff, I write by hand. Um, I try not to write on the computer because there's just too many distractions, mm -hmm. too much of a chance of something dinging and me checking email. Um, I like to get in my car. I've written in my car probably more than anywhere else. Um, you know, just go drive somewhere quiet, turn the phone off and just sit there and write in a notebook. Mm -hmm. And so now I, now I want to bring into the conversation your company and it, Pen for Hire. 
and I want to get into what ghostwriting is. And that, that gives like a full picture of how you got to where you are today, the company you started. So what is pen for hire and what is ghostwriting? So I guess I'll start back to front because um, it's easier than to understand what pen for hire is. So ghostwriting is, and this is my own definition, because there are a lot of misconceptions. People think I, I've heard that ghostwriting is cheating. Um, you know, that if you use a ghostwriter, you didn't really write a book. And honestly, all of that is completely untrue. Ghostwriting is the process of helping someone take their knowledge and information out of their head, organize it, and get it turned into compelling, easy to read written content for their intended audience. Mm -hmm. So if you were ghostwriting a book, Michael, we would work together to put all of those components in order so it made logical sense, and then have you talk to us about what those sections are, right? What is the what is the core message in each? And then we're going to turn your words into written content. It's in your voice. It's the knowledge from your head. I, I don't know the first thing about half the things my clients write about, yeah. which is what makes me so good at what I do. Because I've actually had a few clients say, well, I want an expert on this subject. And I'm like, no, you really don't. Because I won't take finance projects for a reason. I know too much about it. Mm -hmm. So the likelihood of one, me missing giant gaps in the work is too great because I know it too well. And the opportunity for me to put my own slant or perspective on it is too great, even if I don't want to, just because I've lived it for so long. So I've, I've got clients writing about cybersecurity. I hate cybersecurity, but you know what? I can, uh, in that process, tell them, I have no idea what you're saying here and neither will anyone else. Like, Let's go deeper. I have clients who are writing on um, partnership parenting, mental health for athletes. I was never an athlete. I don't think I have meant, I mean, people tell me I'm crazy, but outside of that, you know, these are things that I'm not an expert on, but that's where that passion comes in. So the finished product is theirs. It's their words. We're just making it so that the way it's spoken translates better into a written form. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes total sense. And this is, this is why I was so excited to have you on, Matt, is because it, it sounds like really what you're doing, I mean, ghostwriting is the title for, you know, if you would put the headline of what do I do, you, you can answer it really briefly and say I'm a ghostwriter. But what you're really doing is trying to understand a person and like, what are, what are you trying to say and helping them say what they want to say? And I, that's such a beautiful skill. I think that no matter what domain, I mean, we're both very different types of coaches, but a coach is really just trying to help its client, our clients become the best version of themselves in some way, in some domain. And so I would be curious to hear, I'm, I'm drawn to two things, actually. One would be demoing with me. Like I would love to say, Hey, like if, if I were a, if I were a client walking in right now and I, and I said, I, I think I've got a book in me. I have no idea what I want to say. How, how would you structure it or, or go through something with me? And I would love to know just in maybe a, a broader sense, what is, how do you help your clients understand what it is that they're trying to say? Because 
without having like domain knowledge, you're able to clearly, you're, you're able to help them get to the heart of what it is. And that's a really powerful skill. So we have two tools that we use um, in the beginning process. We call it the discovery process. So let's take your, your instance. You come in, you say, hey, I have a book. I, I don't know what I want it to be about. We're going to start more along the lines of, well, what do you want to accomplish by writing this book? Mm-hmm. Right? Because you got to start with the end in mind. If you don't know what your definition of success is, I don't know how we can help you. Right. If someone says to me, well, I just want to be a best-selling author. I'm probably, you're probably not my ideal client. Mm-hmm. And I am going to refer you to one of the firms that I work with who this is what they do. Cause that's now more marketing than writing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, not every best-selling book is, is great literature um, or helpful. And not every book that only sells a thousand copies is bad writing, mm-hmm. right? There's, there's two components so we're want, we want to know how you're going to measure success. If, you, if Most of our ideal clients say, Matt, I'm looking to help more people. I'm looking to amplify my message. Um, I'm looking to bring, to let more people know what I'm about, right? I want to use this as, a, as a, a business acquisition tool. I want clients to understand what my coaching process is. I want people to understand that I'm heart-centered, that these are the types of clients I want to work with. And you can only do that so much in social media posts and everything else. But when someone reads your book, that book is an extension of you. Much like if you have a course, um, these are things that are kind of, I call them, I hate the word funnel, but really they're part of your funnel because they're bringing people in and they're getting them to know, like, and trust you. Someone may read your book and say, wow, Michael sounds like he's really like, I should look into working with him. If you have a course too, they're like, you know what, but I'm not ready to pay for private coaching. Maybe I'll take his course. Most people, before they work with someone, marketing says it's seven touch points, but if they bought your book and your course, they're probably still going to hire you to work with you personally, unless you've solved everything for them along that way. Uh Um, After we know really what your definition and if it falls in line with that is, okay, so what is the problem you're trying to solve and for whom? So who's your audience and how are you going to help them? So you may say, I work with people who want to get more. Actually, no, wait, let me not answer it for you. What would the goal be for your book? Yeah, there. so I, I was thinking as you're talking, there's lots of different directions that I'd want to go. But one of, these are all intertwined. I have a passion for healing, wholeness, aliveness. And I spend a lot of my time personally looking for ways that I can be more wholehearted, fully healed and fully alive. Like what, what do those things mean to me? And I, I spend a lot of time gathering different ways. So like that could be through the arts, that could be through what we eat, that can be through having really meaningful relationships and really being open with each other in ways that you know, vulnerability and, and Brene Brown's work comes to mind for me. And if I were bringing a book idea to you right now, it would be how can I synthesize all the ways that I have in my life cultivated healing and wholeness? How can I make that so it fits in a book that is digestible for my audience? And I think everyone in to some degree wants those things in their life. And if I were to really niche down, I'm really interested in driven, but maybe more reserved, quiet, gentle personalities. 
So where, where would we go from there? So from there, I mean, you just gave me kind of some containers that we could work with. It sounds like you hit on your overarching theme is people who want to be more alive. You want, you want to help people get in touch with this feeling of really living more. And you identified a number of key ways that you do that in your own life, diet experiences, maybe spirituality. Mm -hmm. Um, Those become now our potential chapters. Mm -hmm. I would say, Michael, what else do you got? What else do you do to really feel alive? Like what are some things that you work with your clients on um, that have really made an impact for them? Getting clear on on what you value is a a huge one. So how do you organize your inner world? Like that's, we, mm, I've lived most of my life oriented from the external and working inward, thinking that if I accumulate enough of whatever it is, uh, status, money, stuff, if I have enough of those big house, then my inner world will take care of itself. And the last few years have been a complete flip of the script. It's where, how can I organize my inner world in a way that I'm filtering the world and viewing the world and experiencing the world from a place of seeing the beauty in, in anything, really? So there's a psychology component of that as well that I didn't initially bring to the table is I think one of the best ways to organize our inner world is to understand our own psychology. So like asking the big question of who the hell am I? Is a, is a good place to start. It's very broad. And then, yeah, my, my hope, I guess, in the book would be to give people tools to answer that in, instead of this overwhelming big question, then we can go into the, what are the zoomed in ways that we can find out who we are? There you go. And then right there, um, I'm going to say one of the biggest component or one of the biggest success factors for writing a book is for your audience to know, like, and trust you. Mm-hmm. So who is Michael Trugman? Um, that needs to be in the book. So we want to talk, right? We've already identified some of the things you can talk to people about, but Mm -hmm. no one cares what you know until they know how much you care. Yeah. So who are you? What was your journey? Why are you qualified to speak to people about the items we're about to go into? It's a big question. And the first place that my mind and heart went to was I have been someone who always had a rich, complex inner life and was scared to show that to the world. And and I tried to box myself in a different way, but kind of similar to you. I tried to fit the mold of what societal and and communal success was. So I, I always felt like maybe I was a little different than the crowd, but I, I spent my, I did my damn best to try and fit in with the rest of the crowd. So that might have looked like trying to be popular in high school and doing the popular fraternity in college. And I, I was a good athlete growing up as well. So it, the, the general markers of what it means to be a successful man, I, I was trying to check that all off where, when in the inside, I, I didn't feel like I was really showing up as myself to much of anything. I mean, I, I was too scared to really show my real self. And so in a lot of ways, I chameleoned my way through the first 25 years of my life and felt invisible, even though I had lots of friends and, and I still, I love all the friends that I had along the way, and I'm still really close with them. But in a way I was just 
you know, I was hiding, I was hiding from everyone, including myself. And so that led to me drinking a lot, partying, pouring my passion into things like sports, which I still love. But at the end of the day, if someone asked me about myself, I would, I could feel myself just clench up thinking about that. That was the last thing I wanted to talk about. And a lot of my healing journey has been around really looking at myself and, and what do I really want from life and what's my contribution that I can make from a place of internal fulfillment and not what do other people think of me? So the, the guiding question of, I'd say the first 25 years of my life is how can I be impressive to other people? Maybe I, I wouldn't have language it like that, but with some hindsight, that's probably a large, to a large extent, what, how I was orienting my decisions, what, what looks good to other people that I can get their approval. And now it's, what can I do to be in approval of myself to really love myself fully? And so, <laughs> so the journey's gone. Yeah. And then you know, the next thing I'd ask you is what are some questions or some ways that you can ask your reader if they're doing the same thing you were doing? How can you bring them to a place of realization um, that maybe this is going on so that they want to work through it? Because one thing people don't want, everyone buys a book or takes a course to solve a problem, mm-hmm. right? They, they want to get better, but they don't want to be told they have a problem. And they don't want to be told how to fix it. Uh-huh. They want to be able to arrive at that on their own. Uh-huh. And you don't have to answer that now. Um, Cause I, you, I threw you in the hot seat as having a book. A lot of my clients who have really been even thinking about writing a book don't have these answers and that's fine. That's why I do this with them. Yeah. Because a lot of times the answer is, you know what, maybe we need to think about this for a week and come back because those are, those are so key. Um, cause then those also tie in with, after you give them the introspection and we have the areas, uh, that you can help them with, or that they can help themselves with. We also think of activities, like what are some things we can ask the reader to do on their own mm-hmm. to make these changes in their life? Cause people don't retain what they read, but if right. you give them something to do now, they're going to retain it. And that's a better chance that they're going to move on to the next chapter. And yeah. when someone moves on to the next chapter, there's a better chance that they're going to finish the book. Mm-hmm. When they finish the book, there's a better chance they're going to leave you a review. There's a better chance they're going to reach out to hire you. It's, it's a process. Yeah. Yeah. I did want to take, I know I paused for a while there and I, I did want to take a stab at it, but I'll say, I mean, this isn't the answer to your original question, but another thing that's emerging for me is that we live in a culture that can be really isolating and individualistic in a lot of ways. And I, I think the most transformational, that's another word that I'm a big fan of, by the way, transformation. One of the uh, best ways to provide transformation for someone is to have a container where there's a group or there's a, there's a place where you can show up like masterminds are a good example of this different communities. And I would be like, that would be something I'd want to work into my book as well. But I'll take a stab at like, how can I invite someone like to, to meet them where their pain is without telling them that they need to be fixed or that they have a major problem. I think a big part of my story would be one, one way that I might illustrate this is the, I have this imagery of 
when I was showing up to work every day, I, I was going into my office and sometimes I would go in with a lot of hope and like maybe in the background, I would be listening to podcasts that I was inspired. And I was like, I'm going to, I'm going to go out of my way to, to, you know, make a new relationship today. And then as soon as I got into the office, I just, I sat at my computer and I could picture there were a lot of moments at my first job where if I stood up and looked around, there were so many people there, but it didn't seem like anyone was communicating with each other or that there was like these people that I was with for so much of my life that were complete strangers to me. And I wanted to, I think we all equal parts have this desire to be known and to know people, but also are scared of the discomfort that that creates. And so I would, the way that I would maybe invoke that for my reader would be to use vivid imagery of those moments where I was showing up to my first job, wanting to connect with people, but also scared to make that first, you know, reach out or attempt because I thought maybe someone would laugh at me or that it, it just wouldn't be welcome in that, yeah, I had this idea that people want to just show up to work, clock in, clock out, and that's enough. They don't, they don't care about what they do. They just want to make money. And I, I love that you just went there with a personal story um, because in order for your reader to know, like, and trust you, you've got to be vulnerable with them, mm -hmm. right? So I have a lot of people tell me like, oh, I don't know if I should put this in the book or I may be saying too much. Um, one of my pieces of advice is always right at this stage of the process, the only person who's reading what goes down on that page is you and me, uh -huh. right? So don't censor yourself. Don't say, oh, maybe, I don't know. Um, I mean, if you don't trust me enough to say it, then maybe we should be working together um, or there's something deeper. But I want my clients to feel like you can pour your heart, your soul, your, sto your story onto that page. And then in the crafting process, we're only going to tell as much as necessary, right? Is, are there times where there's too much information? Yes, absolutely. But the worst thing we can do is in the creative process, try to make that determination of, I don't know if I want to say this because now you're censoring. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. How do you create that psychological safety with your clients? I, I You strike me as someone who does a, a good job of that for allowing your client to show up fully and to, and to pour their heart and soul into their work. What are some ways, is that something that you're consciously thinking about, or is that just something that you believe you're gifted with and that there isn't a lot of thought that goes into it? Um, honestly, I think more consciously, I've had people tell me that it's a natural ability. Um, if you would have asked me this five, 10 years ago, it wasn't even the case because I just didn't care. I wasn't, in that zone or in that moment, like the story you just told me resonated so much because I would show up to work the same way, like every morning, like it's going to be a better day. Today's going to be great. And then I get there and I just sit at my computer and look around and dread it. Like if someone would walk in, I, I'd see the look on their face. I'm like, oh no, they're, they're going to have a problem. I pick up the phone and pretend to be on the phone or, you know, yeah. kind of go to the coffee machine and hope someone else would help them. So I didn't have to get involved. And now I've found that because I, I've gone through those experiences and I share those experiences with my clients, um, when I have a client tell me about something they're struggling with in the writing process, I have no problem being vulnerable and telling them that happened to me for, you know, for four months, I couldn't finish this project for whatever reason. 
that really lets them see that you're not just a coach or you're not just a subject matter expert, but you are also them. You are in their position. When I start my next book, even though I know what I know and I've written three books, I'm still starting from the same place they are. Mm-hmm. Word one, paragraph one. Well, this this really nicely segues into two words that you wanted to talk about during this conversation, persistence and vision. And one of the first things that comes to mind for me with regard to writing is always persistence because it strikes me as a process that we, we can't rush through. There's, especially when we're undertaking something like a book, it's maybe some, I've heard some people get, I don't want to say lucky, but some people, they get that, that strike of inspiration and they're able to just crank out a book in a short, you know, one, two or three months. And other people say that it took years for the book to materialize and, and become what it is that they always envisioned. So how do you cultivate that? You could take it in either direction you want, but persistence and vision, how does that show up for you in your personal writing and, or how do you extrapolate that out of your clients? Because I know that writing can be, the process can be a little bit daunting, even though in the beginning it feels exciting. It's like, there's a, there's probably a grind that they're about to ensue on. Yeah. Um, ooh, let me see how to, because they so intertwine persistence and vision that I, I'm not sure if I can put them in a correct order. So I'll try to start with persistence. Okay. I have a lot of clients who are phenomenal writers, right? Like I've read their book before we start working together, I'll read their blog or I'll read their newsletter. And I ask them, like, did you write those yourself? Yes. And one of my first questions will be, why the hell are you hiring me? <laughs> like, I don't get it. You can write. <laughs> Um, and it comes down really either time, which I get, you know, like the, my first client or that persistence. Cause you know what the, the answer is generally my blog. I only have to sit down for an hour and write it. My newsletter, two hours, you know, and I do it over a couple days. Mm-hmm. A book just seems impossible because it's, it's hours. I mean, I'm not going to lie to you. The average business book is probably 40 to 70,000 words. Mm-hmm. Um, even if you sit down and write 500 words an hour, I mean, do the math. It's, it's going to take you a couple months. Now, that's not to say there aren't people who have written books in two, three months. I actually know a few of them. Um, oftentimes, they really need a heavy developmental edit because that two, three months was just a massive unfocused shotgun blast of information, Uh um, which there's nothing wrong with. Then put it through the refining process. That's where commencement to completion can become the longest, right? Because you can finish the book in three months, but you got to get a strong developmental edit, copy edit it, make sure everything is really lined up. Um, One of the best examples I think I can give, and I'll tie this in with vision, why can some people train for a marathon in a couple months? And why does it take some people years, if not like their entire adult life to get to the point where they're comfortable to run a marathon? Mm. And I think it's that vision, Mm -hmm. right? If you can see yourself running a marathon, if you have always wanted to run a marathon, if that's been your goal since you were a kid and you get up every day and you do everything you're supposed to do, 
And don't just lie to yourself about doing everything you're supposed to do, right? Stick to the eating plan, stick to the training. You're going to get there quicker. Same thing with writing a book. If that's been your vision or it's strong enough your vision now and you sit down every day and I tell my clients, don't hold yourself to a word count. Don't hold yourself to, give yourself 30 minutes. Just hold yourself to 30 minutes. Anyone can do anything for 30 minutes. If you write 500 words, great. If you write 50 words, great. If you write 5,000 words, amazing. But keep that vision in mind. Why are you sitting there for 30 minutes? Because you have a vision to write this book. If you're not really sure why you're writing the book and it's just something someone told you you should do, you're probably going to take a lot longer than the person who knows I need this for my business. The world needs to hear my message. Whatever that vision or that driving force is, that's going to make you the quicker marathon runner. Because it's easy to give up on a book. I mean, you can get a hundred pages in and say, I'm done. This just got too hard. People who run three quarters of a marathon and then say, I'm done. I'm tired. What's the difference between them and the person who goes the, the final 25%? Uh-huh. What's your vision for pen for hire? And, and has that evolved since you started it in 2018? Because I know vision is it's powerful enough to move us certainly. And it also can evolve in sometimes subtle and sometimes bigger ways. So what was, what was your vision for pen for hire when you started it? And, and what is it now? So my vision originally very simply was to pay my bills, help people doing something I love doing and never go back to a corporate job again. Mm-hmm. My vision now, um, is to have one of the premier ghostwriting companies in the country, if not the premier. Mm. We've added in author coaching um, for clients who maybe are good writers. They want to have more personal involvement and we help them get through it. Um, We're rolling out uh, a much more comprehensive support system in terms of publishing, public relations, social media management, author website development, video book trailers, Um, you know, things that normally I've always said, I don't want any part of because I don't enjoy them. Mm -hmm. And uh, quite honestly, I still don't enjoy them, Mm -hmm. but we're building a team of partners and and industry professionals who are the best at what they do in each of those areas, because our clients have messages that we believe in, right? That's one thing I've been able to refine too. I always knew I wanted to write for people who inspire me, for people whose message can make the world a better place. In the beginning, that sometimes you take a project or two that maybe doesn't align as much with that vision as you'd like because your your mortgage payments do and you don't have a client. Um, We've gotten to a point now where I've said no to more clients than I've ever said no to in my life. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's, I don't want to say a good feeling in terms of like saying no to people, but it's an amazing feeling to know that if that project doesn't align with my mission, vision, and values. I don't need it. Um, And being that I enjoy working with all of our clients so much and want to continue just attracting people like that who do such good in the world, that's where we made the strategic decision to really help them work with only the best of the best, because there are so many um, scams out there. There are so many self-publishing companies 
There are so many people who want to tell authors, you know, we're going to do X, Y, and Z for you. And at the end of the day, you write them a check and you're lucky if you ever even see your book in print. Mm-hmm. So rather than just ghost write someone an amazing book and then send them out there to the wolves, we strategically want to make sure that if they say, hey, we want publishing, here's two of my preferred like pen for hire approved publishers. Mm-hmm. Here's two of my pen for hire approved public relations specialists. You are going to get top notch service. No one's going to steal your money. And I would use them myself. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I did want to get now into the business side or the entrepreneurial side of pen for hire because we've, we've spent a good amount of time talking about creative process and writing, which I love. And I'm also really interested in how you built this. And one of the things that you just named was strategic relationships. I mean, you didn't say it exactly that way, but really knowing what you excel at and then being able to form relationships with people who excel in areas that you don't want to pay as much attention to. That strikes me as something that you're really, really good at and that has really served you in building your business. But what were, maybe in the beginning, what were some things that you struggled with to grasp at first? And then what has allowed you to take off and really succeed? So struggled with at first and still struggle with really is knowing when to step back and let someone else do something. Right. So as an A personality, as someone who loves writing, I can get so immersed in the projects that there's no time left for anything else. And as a business owner, as an entrepreneur, you can't be a technician all the time and step back and see the big strategic um, picture. Right. If all I'm doing all day long is writing, when do I have time to say, well, we're not serving our clients well enough by only writing the book. So I've really struggled with one trusting. And then we have like, uh, I think we're up to five people on the team, but trusting that other people can write as well as I can Mm -hmm. trusting that other people are going to pay as much attention to the projects as I would and handing off a little bit of the responsibility to them to get that writing done. So I can free up time to say, all right, here's where we're going to steer the ship. So that, that's been the struggle. The, the, the benefit and really the, the payoff and the enjoyment is my podcast, much like yours, I get to meet amazing people. Mm-hmm. So I've had publishers on, I've had best-selling authors, um, and I've formed relationships with them to the point where they refer me business, I refer them business. Um, it's not like a referral fee type of thing. It's just, no, I don't do public relations. So if you really need somebody, here's who you need to speak to and vice versa. They have a client who's like stuck writing their book and they know that they're going to be doing their PR. They'll send them to me. Mm -hmm. I have a a friend who's a a successful business owner as well. I, I hope he listens to this episode and he's a, he's a financial planner and he tells me all the time that he wishes there were two of him because he, there's so many things that he loves about his business and his personal life too, that he just wishes that there was more of him to go around. And what I interpret that as meaning is 
there's a lot of things I love, but I don't have the priorities in order for like, what do I, what do I actually love the most? Like what's a 10 out of 10 love for me versus an eight out of 10 love for me. How do you know when something is, it's for me, that's like such a tough distinction. There's so many, I'm starting to get to a point where I am saying no to things that I really enjoy doing instead of things that are like absolutely full body. Yes. So how do you make the distinction between those things? So I think this actually came from the book, virtual freedom, but I know I've also heard it through some of my mentors and coaches. You've really got to distill down the thing of everything that you do or every moving component in your business. Where does it fall in a quadrant? And the quadrant is things that you're good at things that you enjoy doing, things that you're not good at, and things that you don't enjoy doing. So clearly, the things that you're not good at and don't enjoy doing are the first things that you need to delegate out. Get someone to take those off your plate. The things that you enjoy doing, but you're not good at, the things that you enjoy doing and you're good at, those are your top, like, hey, no, 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 these are mine. And then work on distilling everything else out. The things that you're not good at, but enjoy doing, got to decide, do you want to get better at doing it or just let someone else do it? The things that you're good at, but don't enjoy doing, that's the next thing you need to delegate out, right? It doesn't matter how good you are at it. If you don't enjoy it, it's going to suck your soul away from the things you really do enjoy doing. Is there anything in your business that you are both good at and enjoy doing that you still delegate out to someone else? Writing. Writing. Yeah. yeah. So how did you determine that that was something that had to go? I mean, that's, it's, a, it's a really wonderful challenge to have, I guess, I suppose, is to be excelling so much that you're, almost everything you're focused on is, is doing something that you enjoy and that you're, that you excel at. So how did, how was writing the one that you knew had to be delegated versus any other activity that it might be? So by virtue of the fact that everything we do for clients is writing, there comes a point where there's only so many hours in the day. So if all I did was, if I did all of the writing myself, <clears throat> that means <clears throat> a couple other things are going to suffer. That means I can't meet with new people and bring in potentially new clients. Mm -hmm. That means that I can't focus on referring them to partners. I can't, my day is going to literally just be, I can't even necessarily at a point respond to emails mm -hmm. um, and questions that they may have. So there has to be a point where how much writing am I going to take on myself so that I can still serve those other areas of my business. Mm -hmm. Yeah, And I started, I had to look at it as it was a mind shift change of if I'm the only one who does all the writing, I'm doing people a disservice because now there's people whose books we can't write because I'm not able to. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's a point that you brought up before that I think is really important for people that have trouble delegating and identify more as doers is I don't know what number you would arrive at, but there's always probably a part of a doer that thinks I could do this job better than anyone else can. And there's a, a letting go for whatever reason, the, the number in my head is 80%. If someone can do something that's about 80% as good as you believe that you can do it, it's 
it might be time to start delegating that activity out if it's becoming too much. And yeah, I'd be, I'd be curious to hear if that's, is that near your philosophy about around when it's time to delegate certain things out? Um, yeah, I don't know that I ever looked at it in terms of a percentage, but I know for me personally, um, I'm very big on training and, um, shadowing and immersion. So if I have someone that's going to be working or that I'm thinking is able to work on a project, maybe I have that thought of 80%, we'll just use that number. Like, I, I think they, they probably can. Um, like, I know I have a writer now who has a, more of an education in English and literature than I do. Uh, like, I've got a finance degree. She has a master's in fine arts. Mm -hmm. But in the beginning, there's still that, hey, you're going to sit in on the client calls, mm -hmm. right? You're going to get comfortable with how the conversation goes. You're going to learn the client's voice. Mm -hmm. And then you're going to tell me when you're comfortable taking a stab at writing a section. Uh -huh. And then they do that. I read it, right? It's the client's not reading it. And we have a conversation about it. If it's up to my quote, great. Client does, I mean, they're paying for it written, not necessarily paying for me to write it. Yeah. Right, as long as it's at that quality level. And if it's not, then, you know, we go back to the drawing board and we coach and find out what could have been done better. Let them um, self-realize some of the things that maybe were lacking and we do it again mm -hmm. and again. And then there comes a point where they're like, you, you read the, the next draft and you're like, you don't need to sit in anymore. Next client yours. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It, it sounds like it's really just a big investment on the front end to make sure that you're, you're communicating clearly what it is that you're looking for and then there's a refining and eventually it gets to a point where you've communicated enough about your process and they've seen enough that they will start to take it on as their own. And I mean, you didn't mention this, but actually one of the beautiful things that might emerge from that is you get, you, you mentioned this a little bit in your coaching, you get a perspective from someone who isn't viewing the world exactly the way that you view it. And they might have their own flavor or spice that they can add to that, that, it makes for a nice cocktail, right? So like you have your way of doing things. If someone else brings in their perspective, there's an exponential effect that can emerge from there where you're, you're weaving together what's best about your work and their work together. You're absolutely right. And in fact, now, I mean, I'm blessed that I have three writers. So I will match per, like I'm used, still the one, and this is something I haven't figured out how to step back from yet, but I'm still the one who does all the initial consultations um, really gets that figured out to decide if we're going to work with the client. But at that point, I now, I know my team members and I'm good at on that consultation or to the discovery calls, figuring out that client's personality and which writer I will be partnering with on that project. Because you may get better, like your personality is going to click with one better than the other. There's nothing wrong with that. But that's that great cocktail. Right. You, you don't mix the same alcohol with the same juice. Um, some work better with others. Yes. Right? You yeah. don't do rum and orange juice. You, you do vodka and orange juice. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Yeah. Well, you, you mentioned at some point earlier in the conversation that you you now work with, I believe it's multiple coaches. Is, is that right? You have more than one coach. Yeah, I have, um, I have I'll call him more of a mentor uh, okay. in his business um, development group. And then I have an actual business coach. Mm. Yeah. So I would love to, not just from the perspective of what you do, but 
maybe in general, the, the process of coaching, your, your belief in why it's so helpful, what are some things that your business coach has helped you really hone in on? And what have been some of the biggest lessons you've learned from your coaches and or mentors? Oh, wow. Where to start? Um, so I guess one of the first things that I learned is what we were just speaking about. You're not the only one who can do everything right? Um, there are other people who can do things within a range of you where you got to let go. Mm -hmm. There has to be some balance in your life. Uh, as entrepreneurs and business owners, it's very easy to just keep our head down and be like, I'm working 90 hours a week. That doesn't necessarily mean you're working efficiently um, or effectively. There comes the point of diminishing returns, which I never thought about before. Um, and then I started realizing, you know, looking back at times where I'd wake up in the morning and realize the last three hours worth of work I did the night before was garbage because I probably should have went to bed and it costs more time to just fix it. So there's that um, progress, not perfection mm. is definitely one of my, um, my favorite takeaways. And that's kind of what I use with my clients about just getting started. Um, getting something going is better than thinking it has to be perfect. I'm, I'm, there's so much swirling around in my head now. I'm drawing, I'm drawing blanks. Consistency. Consistency is key. Mm -hmm. yep. um, and oh my God. The, yeah. The, the most important thing I think is as business owners, we are all always looking for more clients. How are we treating our current clients? We oftentimes neglect ourselves, which is where that balance comes in. And my biggest shifting point was looking at myself as my number one client. Mm. Because if you're not taking care of yourself, you can't effectively help other people get better, right? Um, in the airplane, when, they, when the oxygen mask comes down, they tell you to put it on yourself first. Because if you pass out, you can't help anyone else. Uh, and it took me a while to really get that through my head. But over the um, 18 months of working with my coach, my energy levels, nutrition, like everything has just gotten better. I, I've lost 60 pounds in the last wow. six months. Wow. Because now I take the time out to actually eat lunch and care about what I'm eating and not just wait till the end of the day and stuff my face with whatever I can get my hands on. Uh -huh. I block times on my calendar to go for a walk, to like clear my head, um, breaks between calls to do some exercise, like just those little, right? I'm, I don't go to the gym. I'm not out running on a treadmill, literally just walking some push-ups um, and watching what I eat more than I used to has completely changed my entire health situation. Yeah. That's such an important thing for, I think, anyone who's venturing on something big and, and has a huge vision is to always, I think we all fail at it one time or another, but to to make yourself your own number one client and pay yourself first isn't isn't just a piece of financial advice it's it's something that we can do in any ways that we we can nourish ourselves by reading by walking by watching what we eat there's there's so many by by having a phone call with a friend that that you have a, a mutually nourishing relationship with so that's i i'm happy that you brought all of that in because my my next question was going to be what are the ways that you've treated yourself as the as your own number one client, but you, you already answered that. So 
where I want to, as we move towards the, the last, you know, 15, 20 minutes or so of this conversation, I would love to know maybe some books or resources that you have read that you've found most helpful. It, it could be in, in any realm. It could be with regard to writing process. It could be with regard to building a business. It could just be fantasy and purely out of enjoyment. So what have been some books or resources that you ha have found really helpful over the course of your life? So I'll, I'll start with the two most recent ones that I think have been the most impactful or at least aligned with this current mindset. Um, one is Atomic Habits. Mm -hmm. uh, just absolutely incredible book. And it, like I hear my business coach would tell me that forever. And it didn't click until I read the book that just making a 1% improvement compounded can make such an exponential difference in the end. Mm -hmm. um, so atomic habits, absolutely. And, and that's kind of where I gave my clients that, you know, sit down and write for 30 minutes. Anyone can do anything for 30 minutes. You just got to start somewhere. You got to build habits with little small successes because that tricks your, your confidence into saying, well, I did that. And now when you do 35 minutes, 40 minutes, 45 minutes, you're gradually getting better. I did five pushups. I did 10 pushups. Uh, now I can do 20 without stopping. Oh my God, that's great. Uh, so definitely Atomic Habits, um, Outwitting the Devil by Napoleon Hill. Mm -hmm. um, incredible book just to really, uh, it's kind of like the opposite perspective of Atomic Habits in a way told very much from all of the things that are going to try to stop you from implementing these good habits for your benefit, right? All those little voices that are going to try to tear you down and tell you it's, it's better to skip that walk and go have a beer. Um, right? uh, why go to sleep? Go hang out with your friends. Uh -huh. um, and I think that book was so before it's time also just, you know, not listening, uh, it's one of the things I wrote about in my book and didn't realize at the time, not listening to people who aren't where you want to be in life because people are happy um, when you are at their level or lower, mm -hmm. right? There's very few people out there who want to build people up mm -hmm. because then they feel insecure. Like, oh my goodness, like we were, we were the same weight two months ago and now you're so much lighter than me or, oh my God, we were making the same amount of money last year and now you're making double what I'm making. There becomes a feeling of insecurity instead of, Hey, how the hell did you do that? Uh -huh. Right. Can you help me out? Uh -huh. um, so just realizing that, and that's okay. I mean, you can't change everybody, but you want to surround yourself with people who are doing better than you and looking to help bring others up to their level, mm -hmm. you know, outside of those two, some, some other ones that are classics that I haven't read in a really long time. Don't try to like how to win friends and influence people. That's a great book. Mm -hmm. Um, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, The Millionaire Next Door. I love Robert Kiyosaki. Um, Virtual Freedom was another good book. On the fantasy, on the nonfiction side, on the fiction side, one of my favorite books of all times is Atlas Shrugged. Mm. Ayn Rand, right? Yep. Mm -hmm. um, you know, people. I believe I read recently it's on like a banned book list uh, for like communist undertones. I think anyone who banned that book probably has no idea what it really means um, or probably never read it, but that's a whole other story. I just books like that. Um, and there's probably one or two other that I can't think of at the moment. They're, they're fictional, 
but they're told in the way that I like to write my fiction. Mm -hmm. They are fictionalizing very real world issues. Yeah. Right. In such a way where the reader's like, oh, that's ridiculous. That could never happen. Uh, and then you look at it and you're like, no, it really, 1984, 1984 Animal Farm Orwell was was great at doing that. Yes. And we look back now and it's like, oh, wow, um, this kind of is 1984. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, this is a, a slight left turn from where we're going. And I, I started to move towards the back end where I asked more rapid fire types of questions. But what advice would you have for, you know, we, we've both been in the seat of someone who's showing up to a job where we're a little bit checked out and maybe we've lost sight of passion. Maybe we aren't even admitting that we have one in the first place. So someone who is listening to this and is thinking, man, I, I would like to do something I'm more passionate about. I I'm doing a job where I'm completely checked out. And I hear, I hear two guys who are, you know, they're chopping it up about these, these careers that they really put all their love and passion behind. Where would you invite someone like that to start? Because I remember in the beginning of my journey, it was, it was so overwhelming looking at the, I, I did the same thing as you. I wanted to figure out some sort of lateral move, like within accounting, was there a side move I could make where I don't have to make this big shift? So where would you invite someone to start if they are in that stuck place? So obviously not everyone and most people, this is America, are not in a position to just quit their job and try something new, right? Mm -hmm. Or to just quit their job and become an entrepreneur, especially without a plan. Mm -hmm. If I look back for me, one of the things that I don't think it even clicked until just now that I had started doing was volunteering. Mm. Right at the time, it was highly recommended by one of my bosses because it looked good. So I'm not going to lie; that's the reason I did it. I wasn't sitting; I already hated my job. I wasn't like, "Gee, I'm going to go from work to sit on the the board of directors for the local YMCA." Like that's just crazy. Um, but once I started doing it and realizing more about what they're about, and it's not just you know, people hear YMCA and it's like, "Oh, it's that song by the Village People," or "Oh yeah, they, you know, there's a gym you can go swimming." But they have so many programs, like especially in New York anyway, in, in, this, in the public schools, like they have after school programs, they have mentorship programs and being able to be a part of that. Even It was just two hours of my life every month, mm -hmm. but being able to be a part of that and help their staff professionally develop because these are 19, 20 year old kids that are working in the schools. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's really what finally got me to accept that little per diem job in the schools that I never would have thought of going from making a six figure salary to barely a five figure salary. Um, but it just showed me that there's people out there who are making very little, but they love what they do. Mm -hmm. Like showing up every week, everyone on that board volunteer. Um, but they were there rain, snow, shine, whatever it was, hottest day of the year, coldest day of the year. Everyone showed up to the meetings. Um, everyone participated and it, it kind of, I guess, yeah, really started to allow me to change my mindset. So if you're not in a position to quit your job um, or you're not in a position to just start a business on the side, uh, look for volunteer events in, in a space that's doing what you like doing. You know, if you like being outdoors and you're thinking of starting, a, you know, some type of outdoor company, volunteer with the Boy Scouts, mm -hmm. um, what, local Elks Club, whatever it may be. Yeah. Mm, that was a beautiful answer. Well, 
we covered a lot of ground. I, I think we, we hit all the points that I wanted to hit. Was there anything that we didn't discuss or any loops that were unresolved that you'd like to close now uh, before we get to the, the very back end of the interview? Um, no, I mean, it always amazes me how much content we go through, but when you get two New Yorkers in the, in the same space, <laughs> um, it's usually much quicker than a normal conversation, right? Yeah. Yeah. It was a lot of fun, man. I, I really enjoyed this. It's, it's two areas I'm super passionate about writing and, uh, and business building and entrepreneurship. So I'm really glad that we were able to, and, and coaching of course, as well. So I'm really glad that we were able to touch on all of those things. So the, the final question, well, actually, before I get to my final question, where would you invite my listeners to connect with you and, and your work? Um, I am big on LinkedIn. It's probably my top social media platform. So they can follow me, Matthew Harms. I think I'm probably one of the only ones. Um, website is penforhirenyc.com. Um, always appreciate people dropping for, um, signing up there. We give out the free book tools that I was mentioning to you before that we use with all our clients. So if they sign up there, the, we'll, we'll email them right out. Um, those are probably the two best ways, uh, Facebook, Instagram, I'm, I'm there, but I'm hardly ever checking it. In fact, I'm between virtual assistants at the moment, but that's usually their job because social media, going back to the distraction thing, mm-hmm. it just pulls me into a world that messes with my headspace. Yes. All right, Matt. And the final question that I ask all of my guests, the podcast is called Mike's Search for Meaning. And the question that I'm really after is, what does it mean to you to live a meaningful life? And so, yeah, I'm curious from your perspective, not from a societal level necessarily, just if you're thinking about what's a meaningful life for Matt, what is the answer? That's such a great question. Um, So first I'm going to say one thing that I'm realizing more and more from a societal level, the the societal constructs, much like the corporate constructs, I don't think anyone should ever be concerned with them because unfortunately all that does is have you fall in line and do what everyone has always done or what you've always done. And you're never going to be able to have this shift because society doesn't want you to. Mm-hmm. Right. So for me to live a meaningful life is to help others find their passion, to help others. Our core, one of our core values and our top core value is voicing the voiceless. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't mean that people can't express themselves. It's helping people realize what their message is mm-hmm. and taking that message and getting it out into the world for good. As long as there have been human beings, there has been written communication, right? They're, they're started out as cave drawings, hieroglyphics, you know, whatever, whatever it is, written communication is one of the few things that separates us from the rest of the animal kingdom. So I want to be a positive influence in getting people to find their voice, express their voice and help create more good in the world. Here, here. Well, I, I can't think of a, a better way to wrap up the interview, Matt. It, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on. Um, I'm really glad that we took the plunge and just decided to do this after meeting each other only one time. And it was a, a very valuable. I learned a lot from this conversation. And awesome. I, I'm sure that my listeners are going to get a lot out of it. So thank you for sharing your gifts with my audience. I, I hope that they 
uh, take the time to connect with you at, at penforhirenyc.com or on LinkedIn. And uh, yeah, to all the listeners, I hope you have a good rest of your day or evening and find your voice. Take care. Thank you so much, Michael. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to listen to Mike's Search for Meaning. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, share this episode with your friends, and leave a review. I look forward to seeing you next time, my friends. And until then, stay safe, stay well, and keep living with purpose. Peace.